Westlobe cutthroat trout are a treasured species in Montana. Join biologist Sam Beret and me as we talk about some of the challenges this Montana state fish is facing today. Hi, and welcome to the FVCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of Northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Our producer is Colin Burkhart, and thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering their library as our podcast home. Well, today we're going to talk about West Slope cutthroat trout with one of the people that know the most about them, and that is Sam Beret. Sam, thanks a lot for coming on today. You're welcome, John. Thanks for having me. And tell us a little bit about your background, Sam. Well, I got my master's degree at the University of Idaho studying Chinook salmon life history, and now I've been a biologist with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for the last seven years. And you and I have done a couple of radio shows before. People may not know this, but you are the fish detective <laughs> that we had in here talking about where the walleye came from on a swan lake and then, then also been working on pygmy whitefish, which is fascinating. But this, this is a great study, this cutthroat study. And, and you know, I, I worked on cutthroat and, and so on as we were talking, but you guys bring it, everything to a higher level. And tell us a little bit about the purpose of this cutthroat hybridization study you're doing in the North Fork. All right. Well, as you know, John, hybridization between cutthroat trout and rainbow trout are causing major declines in cutthroat trout populations around the globe. We wanted to look at the propensity of hybrid trout to disperse and correlate that with their hybridization or their percent rainbow trout versus cutthroat trout. Okay, fascinating. So these cutthroat trout and and the hybrids, they're using these small tributaries up the North Fork to spawn in the spring, and then the young are then going back into the river. And when they come back several years later, that's what you're looking at. How much straying is there? In other words, if you have pure West Slope cutthroat using a stream up the North Fork, will they stray less than, let's say, hybridized rainbow? And th- basically, that's the, the point, right? Yeah, correct. So throughout the basin, we found lower fitness of rainbow trout, whether that be through survival or juvenile costs. And what we hypothesized was that rainbow trout disperse more than cutthroat trout. Okay, well, I guess that would make sense for a couple of reasons. You know, you and I were talking about how, now these rainbow trout, we should say, explain to folks, these are the coastal form of the rainbow. These are not native to Montana. When they're used as hatchery fish, they've always tended to run and leave the area to put in anyway. So this would make some sense. We do have a native rainbow right up in the yak the red band rainbow, but this is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about these introduced rainbow trout. And so what you're saying is that the more rainbow trout genes that a cutthroat is hybridized with, the more it's going to stray from their its home tributary. Is that right? Correct, John. That's what we found. Using pit tags as well as odor of microchemistry, we found that juveniles as well as adults disperse and stray more than the non-hybridized West Slope cutthroat trout. Yeah, and let's talk about pit tags a little bit now. When you're talking about pit tags, these were just kind of coming into use when I was a biologist. And tell us how that works. So a pit tag is a, is a tiny little chip that you can put in the body cavity of a fish and set up a raise downstream so that when the fish swims through 
those arrays, that individual ID of the chip gets picked up in the fish in the database for the array. And you were talking about otoliths too. So how, how did you use the otoliths in so, the study? As you know, the otolith is the ear stone of a fish, and those otoliths have chemical, unique chemical information that can be used to trace that fish back to its origin. So what we did was we looked at the chemistry of the stream where we sampled the fish and then compared that to the otolith. And if it matched, then we knew the fish was born in that stream and hence did not stray. But if it was different, we knew that that fish was strayed. That's fascinating. And, you know, this comes about the radio shows you and I have done in the past about you being the fish detective. You were looking at those patterns on the otoliths and trying to determine where the walleye came from that were stuck in Swan Lake. So this is a great use of that technology. In other words, you can tell because the chemistry of the particular stream they're in, did they, they actually, were they actually born there? Did it lay down that, that chemistry there? So that's, that's fascinating. And let's go through a few of the, the other findings here. So fitness is lower in rainbow trout. You talked about that. And so the North Fork tributaries, tell us about a couple of specific tributaries that you're using there. So we looked at tributaries from north to south, including Moose Creek, Hay Creek, Cyclone Creek, Moran Creek, and, and a few others. Those are known nursery spawning areas for these migratory cutthroat trout. And our main findings suggest that hybrids disperse more readily than non-hybridized westthrope cutthroat trout. And this, this paradox explains the mechanism for hybridization spreading in the Flathead River Basin despite the fitness costs of rainbow trout and their hybrids. Yeah, because you hear about the hybridization of fish, but you don't really know, now you guys are finding, how it, what's the actual operational way it works. And the fact that you can now show a particular tributary as being the place where that particular fish was born and spawned gives you the idea and the, uh, the method to do it. So, so you, you mentioned some of those streams, and a lot of them are around Pole Bridge, so people might be a, a familiar with like Hay Creek. You get there right, be, right before Pole Bridge. We all know the bakery up there and everything. And so we're talking about these local fish that these cutthroat have been here for thousands of years, and we're hoping to keep those pure. Now, when you talked about the dispersal itself, what exactly, you know, like how far are they dispersing? In other words, are you, are you finding some rainbow trout hybrids that have dispersed a long ways away in the tributary, or are they mostly dis, you know, dispersed from one trip to the adjacent, adjacent trip? Well, that's a good question, John. We know that fish can swim long distances, and through some past radio telemetry studies, we found that they, they've dispersed pretty far. But with this particular study, we weren't actually able to track where they were from. We just categorized them as if they strayed or if they homed, we, our technology wasn't useful to determine where they strayed from, unfortunately. Oh, okay, you couldn't do that. And no. why couldn't you do that? Well, it has to do with the heterogeneity of the chemistry on the landscape and uh. that we weren't able to determine the exact locations of those strays because they did overlap in certain places. So, for example, let's say Hay Creek and a tributary that's not far away from Hay Creek, they may not be that distinctive in their chemistry, and so you can't, I guess sort out the fish that are that are different? Correct. So what are some uh, practical applications then of this? Um, what do we need to do? So what this shows is that we can de decrease dispersal by reducing the sources of hybrids, and this can mitigate the harmful effects of invasive hybridization on biodiversity. So us at Fish, Wildlife, and Parks are working to remove rainbow trout in known source locations. 
Okay, so in other words, when you say remove them, you're talking about electrofishing, removing them. You're not talking about about using toxin to remove them, right? Because there's too many other fish in that area. Or right. How are you removing them? In the main rivers, we're not talking about using using toxins, but we we remove them using traps, electrofishing, etc. But we are using fish toxicants to remove hybrid sources in mountain lakes. Right. Exactly. But not in streams like Correct. those North Fork tributaries. You know, this this brings to mind when I was the angler ed coordinator for Fish Wildlife Parks, and and we were taking kids fishing at Pine Grove Pond. You guys would come over there with some rainbow that you electrofished out of the flathead and put them in that pond. And so that was like a way of doing this, a way of trying to reduce the rainbow trout. Were you involved in any of that? I was not. Okay, but that's what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> and so, okay, a couple other things. So this, this brings to mind the genetic monitoring that we need to do to find out how pure the fish are, where we can kind of focus on, on removing fish that are in a, like, a, like Rabe Creek. You talked about Rabe Creek. I think you could remove some fish there probably. Physically. Yep. Rave Creek's one that we have trapped and that we remove. We, it's a known hybrid source. And we know these sources and we know this spread through genetic monitoring. Every year we have extensive genetic monitoring throughout the Flathead Basin to determine where fish are from, the hybridization status of those fish, and how that hybridization is spreading. And when you say, you know, you're, you're genetically, you're monitoring those fish species, you're taking a little, a little clip off of its anal fin, right? And you're sending it into the, the laboratory at University of Montana. We're we still using University of Montana. Yep, correct. How many points on those uh, chromosomes are we looking at? How many loci? We're looking at 32 points ah. on the chromosome with single nucleotide polymorphics or SNPs. I remember the last time that I did it in the South Fork. We were talking about the stuff I did up the South Fork. It seems like it was 20 loci for cut. There was cutthroat, and then there was. There was the Yellowstone, the West Slope, and the Rainbow that they were looking at. And it seems like it was like 15 or 20 loci of each of those. And so they would either find that it's pure West Slope and no other markers, or they would find some combination. So is that similar to what you're doing? Yep, right similar now? technology, correct. And I, it's not really that bad either as far as price, as I recall. I mean, it's a little pricey, but it's to be able to peer inside the genes of a fish like that is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a great technology. So before I let you go, uh, what do you like most about West Slope Cutthroat, Sam? <laughs> I like what I like most about West Hope Cutthroat is uh, their unique colors and they're beautiful and the fact that they evolved on the landscape for millennia and that they're fit for this this beautiful place we call Northwest Montana. Well put, and you know, as we were talking beforehand, I did quite a long study up the South Fork with uh, West Hope Cutthroat, and every year I would capture 100 to 200 West Hope Cutthroat and look at their scales and their their growth rates, and we did genetics several of the years. And I would always look at the eyes of those cutthroat because they all had these kind of blank expressions. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what do they think of this? <laughs> I mean, I'm getting a little weird now in my old age. But, uh, but I'm actually starting to talk to them a little bit because, <laughs> because uh, I've looked into the eyes of thousands of cutthroat, and I, I keep looking for some recognition. Like I was telling you, that one cutthroat I caught over a six-year period, caught him three times. And every time I would look at him, he would just stare like no big deal, you know, and then go right back out. And, and so I, I'm a little bit superstitious when it comes to cutthroat trout. So what's your what's your plans uh, coming up for this summer then as far as research? We have a bunch of different research projects going, but we will be up in the area that you like there in the South Fork of the Flathead Basin. And we're doing a temperature monitoring up there. So we have we have hobo temperature loggers and all the bull trout spawning locations. And given how warm last year was, we're... We're pretty excited to go download those data and, and determine the, the average daily 
water temperature for each one of those spawning tributaries. We'll see if this flood wipes out any of your information. So, <laughs> Sam, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks, John. That's all the time we have for this episode of the FVCC Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fraley, and I'll see you next time.